Welcome to our Clear and Present listeners. Today we start the first of a two-part series on Unidentified Anomalous Phenomenon, or UAPs. UAPs have been in the topic of the recent congressional hearings, a 60 Minutes feature, and PBS analysis. Please listen and join the conversation. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Clear and Present. I am Dr. Denise Bacon, back again to turn the tables on our executive director, Dr. James Giordano, for a topic that has quickly taken over the headlines, UAPs, the Unidentified Anomalous Phenomena. Gee, welcome back to that side of the microphone. UAPs, UAPs uh, or UFOs, as they've been called, uh, uh, have been on the radar for several U.S. government agencies, in particular uh, the last couple of days when we had the congressional hearings. And um, because of the hearings uh, last week in particular with their three guests, um, UAPs have become front and center another uh, activity for uh, the media's bullseye. And today, thank you. Um, we are going to be able to tackle just a little bit of the background and then the biodefense implications. And those biodefense implications, I think, become um, signature and, and singular because of one of the statements made by um, David Grush, a, uh, a Grush the, uh, one of the testifying uh, members. Uh, I think he's chimed in that there was something called non-human biologics. So let's just jump right in there. Uh, everyone was intrigued by the testimonies. I, there were three people, uh, Commander Fravor, uh, retired, Lieutenant Graves, and uh, who I also believe was retired, and Mr. Grosh. Uh, now, everybody was especially interested in his uh, statement, as I've said, Um but we all recognize that um, there are safety risks in a number of the domains that are applicable to the whole U.S. public. So do you see UAPs as a risk on uh, or threat factors uh, for the U.S. and or its, uh, its global biosecurity? That's a great question. So, I mean, I, I think it, it becomes important to, to ground the issue to why we've moved from UFO to UAP. So the idea that they're unidentified anomalous phenomenon and not unidentified flying objects opens an implicitly interesting door as to whether or not these things are flying and flying only. Mm-hmm. If there may be some terrestrial engagement, in other words, that we see them on the ground and there, there's some opportunity to then encounter them on the ground, the whole idea of what are the various types of, of encounters, first, second, third, kind, mm-hmm. et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there have been some reports of these things being in the water or at least using the water as a potential resource, which then gets back mm-hmm. to, well, what is the mechanism of propulsion? And then are the mechanisms of propulsion indicative of what they could be? And then- 
based upon what they could be, does this then pose some possible potential, if not probable, at very, very least risk to safety, if not health? Certainly, this was one of the points that was raised by Lieutenant Graves, the idea that there are these things that are flying around and moving around in airspace very, very rapidly, very erratically, may mm-hmm. prove to be somewhat problematic for both civilian commercial as well as military aviation. So right. literally saying these things have popped up on the radar, they have. And of course, this then speaks to uh, retired Commander Fravor's testimonial that the actual pattern of being able to go from 80,000 feet, which is basically at the threshold of space, down to 20,000 feet to 15,000 feet down to deck level, very, very rapidly, almost an immediate transition at speeds that are in excess of what would be capable of anything that exists with, within our aerial armamentarium or our aerial portfolio of capability, certainly would suggest that the mere pattern of flight might be at least problematic in terms of, well, what if these things are interfering with commercial flight up at the flight levels, military operations, et cetera, if we get mm-hmm. a radar signature where we're not quite sure whether this is a bogey or a bandit, is it behaving mm-hmm. more like a bandit? In other words, a bogey is an unidentified blip on the radar. At that point, you want to try right. to identify the blip as friend or foe. These things are not, quote, squawking friend or foe. In other words, they don't have um, a transponder signature that would suggest, yeah, they're on our side or not. And of course, that raises a whole bunch of issues in terms of not only safety for the conduct of of commercial and or military flights, but also military operations, particularly military operations in defense zones where there may be exercises and some of them being live fire exercises with with hot ammunition, and or the fact that these things may not be recognized and may be misidentified as potentially hostile craft, missiles, uh, a variety of other forms of flying objects, submersibles, surface objects that then transpose themselves and transgress into national air and or water space which might then engage a national security level situation, which of course would then pose a variety of risks. So there's Mm -hmm. that issue. But if we go back to some of the stuff that Mr. Grush said, that there's been non-terrestrial biologicals, the question obviously is, what does that mean? What do we mean by non-terrestrial biologicals, Mm -hmm. non-human biologicals? And here we could really have three things. based upon the size of the objects and their pattern of flight, there has been some speculation as to whether or not these things could be piloted. And if they're piloted, are they piloted by a biological organism or not? And of course, here, that raises a whole host of potential questions that I think supersede the answers. In other words, the answer might be, well, okay, what kind of things could pilot these across long distances in space? And how are they then able to traverse space-time? And then what does that mean for the nature of the biological substances and biological material? What are we dealing with? So is it an entire organism? Or is it more that there's biological, literally material, that is then being introduced as some sort of a, a seeding aspect, whereby the exposure of one form of biological material to interact with another might either occur experimentally or investigationally or by directional intent. This is the idea that these objects might represent something referred to as von Neumann spheres, 
that are spheres which contain biological material which can then auto-assemble once they have reached a particular destination, either intentionally or simply by accidental collision, which then would provide that biological information, that biological material to whatever is going to be that novel environment. So essentially, it's sort of like throwing seeds out into the wind. You can do this in a directional way if you know which way the wind is blowing and you know all the the characteristics of your seeds and whatever you wrap the seeds in. Or you could literally Mm -hmm. just toss them up in the air and figure out where they're going to land. And at that point, either with intention, in other words, gnostically, or without intention, agnostically, they go somewhere and you're seeding. So is it that kind of material? Or might it also be that there's residual biological material? In other words, that these things have traveled through some form of space-time, and as a consequence, there's artifactual residue of biological material that was then encountered. I mean, clearly that material being some form of biological substrate, but again, identified as not something that we know of as existing here, uh, certainly without, without being human, but the other question mm-hmm. is, well, does it fit anywhere at all within the phylogeny, within the known species of organisms that exist here on Earth? And I think those, those are questions that remain to be addressed and answered. And, and that brings me to another question. Again, it was it was that scientific analysis that it, um, uh, the government respondents that I've heard they're trying to to make sure that there's an understanding that it's not saying they don't exist. It's that there is there has not been established from a scientific analysis what this unspecified phenomenon are is could be. So Correct. Can you address some of that then from the standpoint of we have this vagueness that's out there for those who are calling for greater transparency? Is there that there's no transparency or that there is difficulty in that analysis from, again, as we deem scientific analysis? It could be either or it could be both. Right? I mean, I don't, I don't mm-hmm. think they're mutually exclusive. First is whether or not the, the toolkit exists to be able to analyze whatever it is they have to the extent exactly. where a definitive answer comes up, right? So in other words, anything mm-hmm. that we, any task that we have is always going to be capabilized or limited by the tools we have to do the task. And if the tools have mm-hmm. been to date insufficient, it may very well be that the answers gained by using those tools are equally insufficient. And as a consequence, we don't know. Or we have some thoughts as to what it is, but this requires the development of a much more granular, articulate, and sophisticated toolkit, which would then make those analyses iterative. Now, I mean, there is something that goes along with that. If we don't know what something is, are we prepared to say, look, we've got something that we don't know what it is? And is that by itself a psychological, emotional, and potentially social public health risk? In other words, if what we put out there is we've got something, we've had it for a long time, but we simply can't figure out what this is, that information by itself, given the ambiguity of the mm-hmm. actual substrate, might then mm-hmm. prompt misconception, misconstrual of whether or not it's safe or not, which in some cases may not be necessarily inappropriate. Do you know if it's safe? How are you holding on to it? But it might also spool up public imagination and public response in those ways that would be deleterious to national stability, public stability, and even public health. The other issue is if there's some identification of what this is, but we don't know what that means, so to speak, we don't know what the implications are, we don't know how safe it is. In other words, 
here, it's a question of we don't know what we don't know, but we know we got something. Then keeping that sort of close to the chest is probably not necessarily unwarranted because, once again, of the speculation of exaggerated claims, exaggerated Mm -hmm. communication, perception, Mm -hmm. and then, of course, the idea of what might be even panic. And then the third issue that I think comes of that. Or misinformation. Correct. I think the third issue that comes of that is, well, okay, we have something and we do know what it is, but based upon what it is and what we found, there's sort of um, a paternalistic posture that the government is assuming, not only with the public, but even within the various tiers of government. I mean, look, you know as well as I, as someone who carries a clearance, that just because you carry a clearance and that clearance takes you to the top secret level with compartments, you have to be read into particular compartments and there is the need to know. And if you don't have the need to know, whoever determines what that need to know is, you're not getting read into those compartments. Mm-hmm. So simply having a top secret with compartments clearance doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be universally read into all compartments. This is Mr. Grush's complaint, is that his particular orientation on sitting on that committee that was examining UAPs, formerly UFOs, allowed him broad intercompartmental read-ins, and this information was still not being provided. In other words, what's the firewall here? If what you have is a level of clearance that is so multi-compartmental, why is it that what's in that compartment is so... They're so hesitant to divulge. What is the nature mm-hmm. of that? I mean, even saying, mm-hmm. look, what we've got here is X, Y, or Z, and we simply can't let this out. We can't give you any of the details, but these are the reasons why. Well, that's validating. That's enough. In other words, we've got something. We can't let the cat out of the bag, but there's a cat in right. the bag. Cool. Mm-hmm. So the issue there, I think, really then, then comes back to, to the, the prior point, which is there is a general sort of paternalism that appears to be happening here where one set of organizations, infrastructures, uh, sub-institutions within the federal government are saying, look, this is really beyond the pale of what we can let out, even beyond particular compartments, right? One could think of this sort of like, I mean, again, it's a bit of a reach, but I'm using it as, as an example. The nuclear codes, we know we've got them, we know certain people have them, but for you to have the nuclear codes and or the information relative to the nuclear codes and what's in that arsenal, that requires a very specific read-in. That's a Q-level clearance. Mm-hmm. So here again, is there some level of potential burden, not necessarily risk, not necessarily threat, or even identified harm, but burden that could be borne by the open dissemination of this information, which then takes us down two additional possibilities. One is that the actual stuff itself may be burdensome to some aspect of public safety, national stability, biodefense, biosecurity, public health security, whatever. The other is that letting that information out in some way or another may then make parts of that information available to peer competitors, which could then open the possibility for reverse engineering, and or the use of similar information in those ways that might be seen as potentially problematic, if not detrimental to national security on a variety of scales. 
So I think appreciating that level of paternalism is is what needs to be taken into consideration. I'm not justifying the absence of transparency on the part of the federal government, particularly with individuals who were at least in part deemed needing to know, for example, Mr. Grush. Mm -hmm. But I think that what's happening here is that silence is definitely loud because it prompts the question of why the silence. And I think that's what we're seeing on the part of, of our bipartisan congressional colleagues who are asking these types of questions. Perhaps an appropriate response from the government would be, look, you can call this paternalism, but again, not just flirting and playing with words or semantics. We're taking a parentalist posture. And what we mean by that is we're trying to be a good parent here. We have some stuff. We think this stuff has potential burden, risk, threat, or harm in these domains. And these are our fears. These are our concerns. Our concerns are multidimensional, multidirectional. Can the public handle it? Yes or no? If, in fact, this gets out to the public, what does that then signal in terms of our viability and vulnerability to peer competitors to be able to prolong that information, request that information, et cetera, with regard to open transparency and international cooperation? And what does this mean? Or is there some other level of consideration and concern whereby this information is now being used explicitly for national security, intelligence, and defense purposes, whereby the promulgation of that information would really be directly cracking open your playbook to your competitors? The only thing that would kind of mitigate that idea or direct it or militate it in other directions would be that this does seem to be a multinational phenomenon. In other words, it's not as if these UAPs are only occurring in the United yeah, yeah. States or within right. what would be our sort of sort of geopolitical mm-hmm. areas of sovereignty, which would mm-hmm. suggest that other governments as well have at least privy to this type of information, if not this type of material, which would then prompt a very high-level discussion in terms of what this means for international collaboration and cooperation based upon whatever it is we've got. And if this then poses particular burdens, risks, threats, or harms to humanity writ large, irrespective of nationalistic interests. So I think that kind of paints, if you will, the, the, overall, the overall landscape in, in which these conversations are occurring and, and what that might then implicate or in some cases even evoke with regard to the direction of the discussion and the information involved, requested, and ultimately being provided. Thank you for listening to part one of our two-part series on UAPs. Do join us next time for part two, as Dr. G and I continue our in-depth discussion of biodefense implications of UAPs. Subscribe to your favorite podcast channel to join us again next time for another episode of Clear Impressive.